Well, we are making our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They are two books of the Bible in our English Bibles, but at one time they were one book together, one story, and both books have been written by the man Ezra. And as you recall, Ezra and Nehemiah really center on what happens to the Jewish people when they return from exile. And from chapters 1 through chapter 6, uh, we really see the focus on the rebuilding of the temple and all of the difficulties that they had in doing that. Difficulties both from outward oppression and also just inward sin. As you know, if you've been here, we dipped out of Ezra for a while to, to look at some prophets that God sent to them, Haggai and Zechariah, to uh, reinvigorate them, to command them to get back to what they were there to do, which is to rebuild the temple. And finally, through God's miraculous provision, they ended up building the temple in four years, from 520 to 516. And then there was a break, a 60-year break. Now, we don't high priest Aaron. He was also a scribe, a teacher. He was a devoted student of God's word. And King Artaxerxes, who he worked under, allowed him to go back to Jerusalem. And so we saw that last week in chapter 7. We see today in chapter 8 the preparations for that journey and finally that journey being taken. So our scripture today is Ezra chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to read the first 14 verses uh, it's not that it's unimportant, but it is a list of names. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read that, but uh, just understand that those names are important, and we will touch on the importance of them in a moment. I'm going to begin, though, uh, by reading the very end of chapter 7, and then I'll skip forward to eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. It says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, this is Ezra speaking, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So then uh, verses 1 through 14 describe these leading men who he gathers and their families. And then verse 15 says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found none of the sons of Levi, then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Meshullam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place, Casiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah and the sons of Merari with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. 
Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them, keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. On the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver, the gold, and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, the son of Benoi. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, burnt, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. <clears throat> so Ezra, this priest, this scribe, this uh, man who desires to help the people of Israel know better how to worship God and, and bring them back to understanding who God is, is officially sent by King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes not only sent Ezra, but he granted permission, granted permission to any Jewish person who wanted to return to Israel that they could return and head there with Ezra. And as we look at the list of names there in, in verses 1 through 14 that I didn't read, but if you just go through there carefully and you compare them to the list of names of the people that had ventured back, remember, 80 years earlier, King Cyrus, king of Persia, who God had raised up to send the Israelites back home from being in exile, uh, he allowed w whatever Jew wanted to return back to his homeland to go. And we see in Ezra chapter 2 a list of names of guys who, and their families who decided to go back. And if you look in this chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, and you look at that list, and you look at the list in chapter 2, you see that the names are very similar. In fact, almost all of the names in chapter 2 are the same names in chapter 8. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us as we knew already, when only 42,000 decided to go back, that a lot of Jews stayed in Babylon. 
In fact, so many wanted to stay that it divided families. That the people that are returning now, 80 years later, are of the same family, a lot of them, of the people that went 80 years earlier. Families are being reunited. Now again, this may strike us as odd. Because what do we know about the Israelites? We know that they were sent into exile. That they were there in Babylon, or i.e. Persia, because of being exiled. Because Nebuchadnezzar had come in and destroyed the temple and carried them off. Now, why hadn't they all gone? Why even now is there such a small group going back? It's probably all told five to 8,000 that go back. It was 42,000 roughly that went back the first time. Why did half the families decide to stay? Wasn't it every Jewish person's dream to return to Israel, to, to go to Judah and to Jerusalem, to, to bask in the glory of the temple again, to be back home where they belonged? Well, apparently not. And as scholars point out, actually, a lot of the Jewish people had done quite well in Babylon. Yeah, they were exiled there, but in, the 80, uh, in, the, in all of the years, the 70 years that they were there, and then in the 80 following years that these people stayed, they ended up setting themselves up quite nicely there. They, they ended up uh, growing crops and, and getting married and building homes and starting families and having jobs. They owned property. And how had things in Israel gone? It's not as though that had gone perfectly. The people that returned there found the temple a destroyed ruin, the, the city a smoldering ruin. And when they tried to rebuild it, they faced opposition from the Samaritans. They faced their own discouragement that the temple was nowhere near what Solomon had built in his glory. So why go back? What is the, the draw to go back when I have quite a nice life in Babylon? I think of all people that went back this time, Ezra probably had the most to lose. Because Ezra was not only a man that had found a life there in Babylon, but he was most likely serving in the royal court with Artaxerxes, one of, one of his men, his right-hand men. He, he, was, he was there, he had made it. He had a cushy life the rest of his life. Why did he decide all of a sudden to give up everything that he had in Babylon to go back to really a not so great situation in Jerusalem. Well, scripture tells us Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So basically, Ezra decided that he was going to give up everything he had in Babylon in order to serve God and serve God's people. To him, that was worth it to head to Jerusalem. And so Ezra gathers these leading men in verses 1 through 14. Now you would think, maybe, that this journey would have been a nice journey. Because after all, Ezra is gathering leading men who want to go back, maybe after some convincing, but decide to go back, and they're heading to Jerusalem. They're heading to Jerusalem to serve God, to serve his people. You would think that God would 
give them a paved road there, that, that this trip would be a nice scenic drive full of lots of Starbucks on the way. But it wasn't. This trip that they were about to take, this five to 8,000 people, was about a thousand mile journey. Now, just for comparison, I just kind of Googled a thousand miles from Philadelphia. And one of the cities that came up was Des Moines, Iowa. You can imagine how you might be feeling right now if tomorrow we were to set off on foot with five to 8,000 people over various terrain with women, children, and elderly on foot to Des Moines, Iowa. I'm not sure too many of us would be that up for that trip. I'm not even sure I would go if I thought about it. I've moved, Michelle and I have moved a number of times, and that's probably one of the worst experiences of my, I, I just, I don't know about you, I just do not like moving. In fact, the last move that we made was from a home that we were renting, and, uh, and it was literally across the street to the home that we're now living in that we bought. We were renting a home for three years when we first moved up here, and then we finally found a home that had an in-law suite, and we bought it. And so we had a bunch of people come over. We had all the boxes packed. We loaded up an entire U-Haul, and then we drove for about a minute and 30 seconds and pulled into the next house. Normally, you get that nice long break after the load up, you know, but we had to just hop right out and unload it. Now, they're headed 1,000 miles with all kinds of different age ranges and, and people with different abilities, and they're carrying with them, if you, if you know how to convert these, these uh, measurements here, they're literally carrying tons of silver and gold with them. They are, if there's ever been a group that is a target for bandits and thieves and robbers, it's this group that's headed. Keep that in mind. Now, before they leave, in verses 15 to 30, you see them preparing to leave. There's a long time of preparation. And the first thing they do is they gather at this place called Ahava and camp there for three days. This was probably this area near, the, uh, near a canal in the, near, in the Euphrates River in Babylon. And part of the reason they're camping there is, is to prepare for this journey. And, and one of the things Ezra does is he, he just counts out everyone that's there. And to his surprise, there are no Levites. Five to 8,000 people, not one person in the group is a Levite. Now that might not mean much to us. But it was very important to Ezra because Levites were incredibly important for the trip and the journey and the reason they were headed there. They were headed to help Israel worship, to restore proper worship at the temple. And Levites existed to help in worship. That was the reason they were there. Levites were set apart by God to assist the priests in worship at the temple. And so, you know, you can only imagine the kind of frustration that this would cause. It's like, you know, imagine the church sets up a church work day and we announce it for weeks on end and we say, okay, this church work day, unlike any others, we are really going to need 
handymen. We're going to need carpenters because this church work day, we're going to actually build a shed, a storage shed. And so we need all hands on deck. And then everybody shows up and not one handyman shows up. You'd think like, well, why? All the, all the lumber's there. It's ready to go. But who's going to do it? You'd feel like canceling the work day. And if I were there, I'd probably want to cancel the trip. It's already, I'm already probably feeling leery of this trip. Why didn't the Levite show up? In fact, if you go back to Ezra chapter 2, there were barely any Levites that went in that group. Why? Why weren't the Levites hungering to get back to what they were called to do? Well, they too had found a pretty cushy life in Babylon. The Levites couldn't own property in Israel. And one scholar says this, Babylon would have offered them, among other things, the opportunity to become people of substance for the first time. Since they had been barred under Israel's original charter of the occupation of the land from possessing territory of their own, Levites may well have been among those Jews who became wealthy in Babylon. Example in banking. Now, if I'm Ezra at this point, with everything I have ahead of me, no Levites, I'd probably cancel the trip, send everyone home. After all, we haven't left yet. But Ezra responds. He gathers leading men, men of insight, and sends them to this place called Casiphia. Casiphia, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. There was probably a synagogue there in this area, and there were probably Levites residing there comfortably, using the kind of insight that they have in God's word at the synagogue. And Ezra sends these men and tells them to go to this Edo, this leader, and to plead with him, send us ministers for the house of God. Please send us some Levites. Well, how many respond? Again, not many. Given the size of the group at hand, 40 Levites respond. Thousands of people, 40 Levites, and then 220 temple servants who assist the Levites. I'm not sure what kind of attitude they had when they responded. And yet Ezra, rather than despairing, rather than turning around and giving up something I probably would have done, in verse 18, Ezra says, the good hand of our God was on us and he gave us what we needed. And once they finally count the people, once they finally have the Levites, they begin final preparation for this journey. And notice that in verses 24 through 30, he's going to take kind of practical, pragmatic steps to guard the, 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 the treasure as they go. Notice that fasting and prayer take the primary place of preparation. Now, Ezra is not neglecting his gifts. God has given him gifts of insight. He's given him gifts of leadership. He's given him all kinds of ability, fortitude, the ability to stick with a task. But Ezra is not forgetting to pray. In fact, he considers that the most important and primary thing that they all need to do before embarking on this journey is to pray. He doesn't neglect to plan. 
but he knows that all the plans in the world will come to nothing unless God's hand is in it. In other words, he places prayer above what you might call pragmatism. And that was a challenge for me this week. How many of you, how many of you, when you set out to make a decision on anything, whether it's to move, whether it's to choose a college or interview for a job or take a vacation, how to raise your children, what spouse to choose, what do you consider the most important step? Prayer or pragmatism? Notice why they pray. They pray, yes, to ask God for a safe journey for themselves and their children and all their goods. That's the primary reason they're praying. Lord, please grant us a safe journey. But notice that, first of all, they pray so that they might humble themselves before God. It's interesting, as I thought about it this week, what they would have been doing, all of these people, this five to 8,000 people, however many, what would they have been doing that day had they not been embarking on this journey of faith? If they were just living in Babylon, I don't know. Would they have been praying? Would they have been humbling themselves and seeking the face of God? Maybe. We're not told. But we do know that it is this trial this difficult journey that lays ahead that drives them to pray. It is oftentimes the most difficult times in our lives that thrust us into prayer. Now notice, and this almost made me laugh as I thought about it. I I wasn't sure how quite to handle this. Notice that the primary reason that they're seeking protection from God is because they don't have a military escort. Now again, if there's any group that is a sitting duck for attacks from ambushes, from bandits, from robbers, it's this group. And they're headed on a thousand mile journey over rough terrain, various terrain, and they don't have a military escort. Now, it's no wonder that they pray. I would too. If I had no military escort, I would probably be on my knees in prayer, even if I don't normally do that. But it's one thing to not have a military escort because you can't have one. It's another thing because you choose not to have one. And Ezra says that they didn't have a military escort even though he could have had one, even though being a servant in the royal court, he could have requested one and gotten one. He didn't because he was ashamed to ask for one. Now, it's not a sin to have a military escort. If I'm one of the people, and already this thing has started out not very well, not many people have responded, I'm leaving a life that I probably pretty much like, We then don't have any Levites, and the ones that come kind of have their arms twisted. And now you decided because you were ashamed that we're not even going to have protection? Nehemiah, who will travel down to Jerusalem 
13 years later, we will see when we get to the book of Nehemiah, he actually gets a military escort. So it's not a matter of one person having more faith than another. Some people have, I think, tried to describe it that way, that, that well, Ezra was more godly than Nehemiah. He, he went without one, and Nehemiah had one. I don't think so. I think if you look at Nehemiah, he, he's as godly as they come. He fasted and prayed and wept for Jerusalem before he headed down. In fact, if you look at the language that Ezra was ashamed, that word ashamed is very interesting, it it could have been, I'm not saying it was, it, it could have been pride that kept him from asking. And, and he's kind of confessing that here. We, we could have had a military escort, but I was ashamed. I was ashamed to ask for one. So there's a possibility that Ezra's kind of confessing here, but I don't think so. I think if you just see what Ezra says here, what he's saying is that I didn't ask for an escort, even though I could have, even though it wasn't a sin, because of prior conversations that I had had with King Artaxerxes. Ezra, who knows, again, working with King Artaxerxes, who knows how many conversations he had had with the king about who the God of Israel was. That the God of Israel was the true king of kings. Probably didn't say that too boldly or else he would have been killed. But that the God of Israel is the king of kings, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipotent, that he and he alone can really guarantee our safety. And after all of those conversations with King Artaxerxes, he thought, you know what? I don't want to ask him for a military escort because I think it would undermine my witness. Nehemiah obviously didn't have that that difficulty. He didn't have those conversations. It just shows you here that two Christians can come to different conclusions on something that isn't sinful and both be honoring to God. So they, these people prayed and they prepared. They set everything in order. But they didn't know the end of the journey. And if you were there, you wouldn't have known the end of the journey. You wouldn't have known that you were going to arrive safely in Jerusalem because the hand of your God was on you. We know because we read it. But they were about to embark on a four-month, thousand-mile journey of faith. They knew God was able to protect them from harm, but they also knew he wasn't obligated to do so. And notice here, verses 31 through 36, the arrival. They depart on a thousand-mile, four-month journey, and there's no description of it. So God gives us verse after verse after verse of names of people that we don't know. And then he describes in great detail all of the gold and silver and the amounts that are going. And then after all of the preparation, all of the prayer, all of the fasting, they go on the journey and we don't find out anything about it. It's kind of like how I felt at the very end of Star Wars Episode Two, The Clone Wars. All that time, all those years of being a a child and hearing about the Clone Wars, and finally there's a movie about the Clone Wars, and at the very end, Yoda says, the Clone Wars have begun, and then it ends. I said, what is this? (laughs) What is going on? There's no description of this journey. Why not? Was it that nothing interesting happened? I'm sure that wasn't the case. I'm sure there were all kinds of things that happened, hardships difficulties, attacks, sickness, 
songs around the campfire. Who knows what happened? I can only imagine all of the things that, that they went through that would make for a terrific story. But Scripture doesn't tell us. All we have in verses 31 and 32 is this. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way, and we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. One verse about the journey. Why is that? It's because Scripture wants us to focus on what is most important. And what is most important were not all of the hardships along the way. What was most important is the fact that they arrived home and that it was the hand of God that got them there. The phrase there that we see, we departed from the river Ahava, it literally means we uprooted ourselves. Literally, the Hebrew word means we pulled up our tent pegs. These were people who had decided this is a one-way journey. We're not coming back to Babylon. We're headed home. They pulled up their tent pegs and they took a journey of faith. They could have kept a comfortable life in Babylon, but instead they left and they relied completely on God to get them home. And Christian, that to me is what stood out most this week. Because when God calls you, Christian, to himself, he calls you to pull up your tent pegs in this world, to journey on a one-way trip to another, to go home. When God calls you to himself in Christ and he puts his Holy Spirit in you, you become part of a new family. You have a new life. And you enter in on a journey fraught with new obstacles and difficulties that you didn't have before. If nothing else, you now have a war going on inside of you between the flesh and the spirit that you didn't have before. There are a lot of things I know, Christian, because they happen to me too. There are a lot of things that happen to you on the journey home. There's sickness. There's illness. There, is, there are attacks laughs, songs around the, around the campfire, there's stories, there's tears. You get injured, ultimately you die. And each one of us has a story to tell about all of the little trials and things that we've experienced in this life. And they're not unimportant. They're important to each one of us. But scripture focuses us on what's most important. The Apostle Paul who is no stranger to sorrow and suffering in this life, puts it this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, there are two things 
that matter most in this life? First of all, that you are going home. And second of all, that it is the hand of God who is bringing you there. One final thing, this kind of as an epilogue here. Notice what they do when they get home. Two things that they do when they arrive. One, they rest. They find their rest. And two, they worship. Where we're going, the Bible says, is the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's come out of heaven. And when we get there, we will finally enter into our rest and we will finally worship our God face to face. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. We thank you for this journey. This journey that, that these Israelites took to head back to Jerusalem. And thank you that it reminds us of our own journey, Lord, that you have uprooted us from our old life in Babylon and that you are bringing us home. Father, we pray that we would live each day by faith in the sure knowledge that we will get there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.